0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to welcome our guest, actor, director, and author, Martin Milnes. Zuleika Books recently published his memoir, Wild Card, How I Learned to Be a Friend, Have a Friend, and Finally Love My Birthday. This book also explores his friendships with many older stars, such as Elizabeth Seal, Maggie Rennie, Jean Bayliss, and more. As part of the popular musical theater duo Ferris and Milnes, called the most exciting musical theater double act to be discovered in years by London Papers, Martin has performed at West End Live at song. Saint- at a Sondheim celebration alongside Maria Friedman, Kim Criswell, and more, and in many other places. He also appeared in Perchance to Dream, Little Shop of Horrors, and more on the West End. He was the director of the highly acclaimed revival of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Grand Duke, and star of the readings of Michael Colby and Joe Intracasso's Dangerous, alongside Leslie Margarita and more. So, without further ado, the always fabulous Martin Milnes. So how did you first become interested in theater and movies? Oh my gosh.
1: Well, uh, for as long as I can remember, uh-huh. and I made my first stage appearance in an amateur show or community theater, as you would say in America. Uh, well, I was five when I auditioned to be Jerome in South Pacific, and I was—I just turned six when the show went on. Uh, but before before that, um, I think the passion really began um, when I was very, very young, and we were in Woolworths um, over here in the, uh, in the UK. And I saw a VHS tape, which of course it was because this is long before DVD um, a VHS tape of Brigadoon with Gene Kelly and Sid Charisse, this beautiful photo on the front of the video, which I still have, I could never get rid of it. And uh, there's uh, Kelly and Cherise on the heathered hills, and uh, with MGM musicals, a purple blazing logo with the lion roaring at the top of the case. And I just knew I had to have it. And I didn't know what the film was. I didn't, at this point, know who, uh, I didn't know who Gene Kellys or Cherise were, etc. But I just knew that I had to have it. So that purchase led to another and to another, and it sparked such a curiosity within me, and. It's something which I'm I'm glad I've never lost. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be curious, the way that you are as well. And uh, I don't understand it sometimes when there's other people you know, of of our age. Oh, I'm interested in theatre, I'm interested in film or whatnot. And they, they just don't think to explore. For instance, I, I once worked with a girl on a show and she had a, a Marilyn Monroe shoulder bag, you know, the way that they have photos mm-hmm. on that and so i thought oh well fantastic we've got something in common so i said oh so you like marilyn monroe and she said oh yes i love marilyn she's my absolute idol and i said oh well what's your favorite film of hers oh i've never seen her in any films i just really like her photos i just thought (laughs) i don't understand that if she's your absolute idol surely you want to know everything about her to be inspired and see what she did and so forth um So with the films, uh, you know, one star would lead to another, and then I've got to discover this, and it was very much like a domino effect, and that's really continued throughout my whole life.
0: So I know we've been talking about movies. Were you also exposed to a lot of stage shows when you were younger, or not as much?
1: Indeed, I was. Yes. And in fact, this is where sort of the movies and the theatre shows overlapped, uh, because, of course, some, not all, but uh, some musicals of that era for MGM were based on Broadway shows, Kiss Me Kate. For instance um, so of course once I'd seen the movie I would want to see it on stage and because I was doing uh, community theatre from such a young age and I, I did shows one after the other after that first production of South Pacific I went straight into um, a production of Gilbert and Sullivan's *Patients* because there, there were two societies locally uh, one of them was the Gilbert and Sullivan Society and the other was the Musical Theatre Company and they performed at the same place and was sort of a crossover in membership um, and uh, my mum was a member of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, and the musical director was one and the same. So once I'd done South Pacific, it was I was drafted in to be a, a tiny dragoon guard in Patience. When I was still six years old, I was carrying a flagpole twice my height. Um, and then the musical theatre company did a musical called Blitz, which you may or may not know in the States. It's by Lionel Bart, who wrote Oliver. And it was, at the time when it came out in the 60s, it was the most expensive West End musical which had ever been produced. Uh, Sadly, it's not done very often these days, but it it, it is a, a fun, quirky show with some great numbers in it. So, I played an evacuee in that. Then they did Annie Get Your Gun," and I was Little Jake, then it was Kiss Me Kate, and I was Petruchio's servant. Meanwhile, the Gilbert Sullivan Society was always doing things. So I was like Page Boy to King Gama, the Lord Chancellors, Page Boy, The Lord High Drummer Boy and the Gondoliers. So I was always doing, you know when I, when one show was over, I was always straight into rehearsing the other. And meanwhile, going to see as many shows as possible, both amateur and professional shows. At the uh, bigger theatres in my local area, so so yes, this is when I was seeing the you know the big number one tours which are coming out of the West End or modern shows like Phantom and Joseph. Uh, but my heart really lay with the um, what we would call the legit repertoire, the older musicals, um, mm-hmm. where I could very much see my style of performance. I thought, no, this is this is what I want to do, and it never crossed my mind to do anything else. There's never been any other career ever which I've wanted. Um, or even toyed with uh, with having uh, and I think that comes back to I think it might have been Leroy Reams or somebody who said this on your podcast if you can consider doing anything else do it and if you can't consider doing anything else stay in the theatre you're in the right place um, so now I've never ever uh, sort of swerved from what I wanted to do But at the same time, I had no idea growing up that the career which I would have would go in the directions that it has. Uh, So, so yes, I've been very, very fortunate in that regard.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. So I want to ask about other people your age who you were growing up with. Were there any who shared your knowledge or your passion?
1: Sadly not. Sadly not. I did not have the best time growing up at school because uh when you're very quirky and you're into all these things um nobody else re- uh, related to me all my passions so uh you know i could go in and into school and talk about fred astaire and ginger rogers and they wouldn't have a clue who i was talking about and i would want to discuss this and i'd want to sing the numbers in the playground as i very often did in fact a very early memory i have of me in infant school is trying to be Ann Miller, recreating the too darn hot tap routine in the playground, which uh, got me attention. I won't, say it, it, I won't say it won me friends, but it got me attention. And uh, also, I remember in uh, junior school, uh, no, infant school, uh, sort of uh, recre- trying to recreate the Billy Bigelow scene in Carousel, where he falls on his own knife, and so uh, instead of climbing up the barrels, I was climbing up, you know, the uh, the wall of the well, not climbing up, but you know what I mean, trying to sort of Inch further, further up with my hands and so forth, um, but no, sadly, the, uh, people didn't know what I was on about. So, uh, but when I performed in school shows and assemblies and so forth, I did get I did get respect because I think people were very much about Wow, you've got guts to stand up and do that!" Uh, but it didn't win me friends, as it were. Um, fortunately, I was I was never bullied in the physical sense. Uh, But I did feel very, very lonely Um, when there was there was one boy who I think tried to intimidate me and bully and so forth. But I I just quoted Shakespeare at him. I said, "Get well, misquoted Shakespeare, actually. I said, get thee hence to a nunnery. Um, So I think the hamlet went over his head, um, but he never bothered me again. Uh, But uh, I was able to lose myself completely in the rehearsals for the amateur shows which I was doing. But at this point, they were all with um, adult companies. I was a child rehearsing with um, adults. It wasn't a youth theatre. But I do remember uh, feeling when I was literally, physically standing on the stage, just feeling so at home. And this, this is going to sound maybe terribly pretentious, I don't know, but my feet, I remember my feet tingling as I was standing on the stage, because I was just so excited I was there. And sometimes during the rehearsal breaks, I would find some reason just to walk across the stage, just because I wanted to be on it. It meant that much to me. There was this connection, which I felt. And I think it's, although I I was more isolated from people my own age, at the same time, I feel very lucky that I found a passion uh, when I was so young because very few people actually find their passions in life. They can, you know, go to old age and never really find something about which they are hugely passionate. And when you do find it, it gives you so many doors to open and so many things to explore. Mm -hmm. And so it gives you so much pleasure and happiness and you can bring happiness to others by sharing and passing on uh, that knowledge. In fact, one of the themes of the book which I wrote last year, Wildcard, which is uh, a memoir of my friendships with, um, the older stars of stage and screen. Um, I call it passing the baton. And it's, uh, I, I use that phrase in terms of passing on not just knowledge, but generosity and wisdom, and passing on what you've learned to other people, because we're all in a huge long line, boom, 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 boom. So I've learned or been inspired by somebody who in turn was inspired by somebody else and it gets passed on to me. It's a bit like what they say in Carousel. You know, you know, if there's one person who remembers you, it never ends. I feel the same way with that wisdom and generosity and, uh, and certainly knowledge, knowledge in the sort of academic sense or historical sense, um, but also knowledge of, of how to conduct yourself, how to be not just on stage, but off stage as well. Uh, because I think there's a great difference between... Phrases stars and celebrity if that makes sense um some of the people i've known they were great i will call them great stars they may not be names that were known to the man on the street but they were stars as opposed to people who are popular in the moment or popular with the media who you could say oh that's a celebrity but to me they are not a star they are not a star i mean the people you've been talking to sondra lee is a star because of who mm-hmm. she's done what she's maintained the lady that she is, that is an example of a star. Likewise with people that uh, I've known who I write about in Wildcard. Um, they, They may have been big stars in their day whose names were not known to the public later on, or just people who perhaps didn't achieve above the title fame in their careers, but they were still stars, because it's much more about just being popular or being well known, if that makes sense.
0: So I want to ask you the same question I asked you about other school kids, about your parents and your family. Did they share your interest? And if not, did they support your interest?
1: I've been very, very fortunate in that regard, because uh, my parents have been completely uh, 100% behind every decision which I've ever made. Uh, And I didn't realize how fortunate I was until I started working in the theatrical profession, and found that there are many people whose parents do not support them. In fact, the first job I did, I was working with uh, one of the singers in the cast, and he was about 36 years old at this point. And I said, oh, well, my mum and dad are coming to watch the show today. And he was astounded. He was astounded that my mum and dad would do that. He said, well, my my dad hasn't come to see anything I've done in my life ever. He said, I once did a show at a theatre down the road from where he lived, and he still didn't come. Um, But Uh, my parents Alan and Pauline have been absolutely fantastic and I certainly couldn't be uh, doing the things which I am today if it hadn't been for their support the entire time and this goes back to um, I suppose their not batting an eyelid when I was dressing up as I did when I was very very young and uh, acting along with MGM musicals or GNS Mm -hmm. um, uh, Savoy operas on video uh, dressing up as people like Aline from The Sorcerer and so forth you know and uh, because what I did Uh, back then my uh, living room would be the stage and we've got an adjoining door between the lounge and the dining room so I would open the door and the dining room would be the wings and I would wait off stage so the video would be playing on the television in the lounge uh, and I would wait in the dining room in the wings off stage and then walk in when it was my entrance, and then when it was my exit, back I went into into the dining room and waited. Uh, so they didn't bat an eyelid when I was doing that. Uh, they drove me to rehearsals for all the shows which I was doing, and you know this was up to three or four nights a week. Uh, as I grew older, you know, so my uh, teenage years would have been spent, you know, Mondays and Wednesdays rehearsing Jesus Christ Superstar, and Tuesdays and Thursdays Calamity Jane with a different society. Um, and then when I was 18, I wanted to audition for drama schools to do the three-year courses, which they offer over here, ending with a Bachelor of Arts degree. Uh, and of course, it was all I'd ever wanted to do. So I, I actually applied for acting courses rather than musical theatre courses, um, because I thought that, well, I've got so much musical theatre experience under my belt, uh, from growing up, perhaps I should get a qualification in sort of straight acting, because then I would have the ability to do both I'd have a qualification in non musical acting, but all the experience in musical theatre. So hopefully I could cross over and do both. Um, so I auditioned for five different drama schools and mm. didn't get into any of them. Every single one turned me down. Uh, and uh, I mean it was in some instances I didn't even get beyond the first round audition so I was cut uh, right at the beginning um and there was one particular drama school which I really wanted I don't know why but, but but oh no this is the one I want but when I went and did the audition at the place I just wasn't feeling the vibe I suppose you could say and I got cut after the first round but I thought I should be really upset about this but actually I'm not no, this this is right no this 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 isn't this isn't what i want uh there was one drama school i got to the very final round i thought no this this one i will take if they offer i will take and then they weren't interested and there was another school and they were very much into for want of a better phrase method acting was what they preached and what they taught so the audition was It wasn't. I'm sure some people thrive off it. It wasn't for me because you have to throw yourself around the room making all these weird noises. I thought this is very strange. And this was the only school which gave feedback on the day um, because it's uh, everybody did all the rounds rather than being cut at different stages. Everybody did all the rounds. And then you gathered together at the end of the day and you were given a yes, a no or a maybe. And I was put into the group of maybes. And there were a few tutors there and they came to me and they said, well, Martin, um, uh, we're not quite sure what to do with you. We've never seen anyone like you before. Uh, you, know, you know, we think there's an artist in there, but we're not entirely sure. Can you come back and audition for us again? And I thought, well, actually, no, no, I don't. I don't want it. Um So I decided not to go back for another audition. I decided to leave it there. Um, for years, and- I'd been taking the stage newspaper, which is our UK equivalent of Variety. Um, <gasps> And I I I first started taking it when I was about 10, I think. And back in those days, so we're in 2005 now, I'm 18 years old in 2005. And this is when a lot of shows regularly advertised open auditions, which these days are not as common in the UK as they are on Broadway, where I know the uh, equity legislation and uh, rules are very, very different. Uh, But not every show in the UK does open auditions. But in 2005 slightly more shows did than they do now uh, and i saw an advert in the newspaper for a show called the thursford christmas spectacular uh, and i knew of um thursford um, in norfolk uh it's a tiny tiny village in fact it's not even a village you can call it a hamlet there's less than 100 people usually live there and it's about nine miles in from the north Norfolk coast but norfolk is where my family and I used to go on holiday um, when I was younger. Uh, we went every year and again, slight tangent, but it it all ties in. Um, it was a wonderful place for theater because in Sheringham, which is the town where we always stayed, there was uh, a little repertory theater. And I, I guess it would be our equivalent of summer stock a summer rep company was there and they would perform all the wonderful traditional shows like they would do the Noel Coward drawing room comedies, they'd do interchangeable Agatha Christie Who it Charlie's Arms, small charming British musicals like The Boyfriend or Salad Days and I grew up watching this this was very very normal to me when Rep Theatre was disappearing all over the country there was still this company doing it and I grew up seeing it and also in Cromer a town nearby um, they used to do um, proper variety shows. They called them seaside special. So, uh, you know, vaudeville basically, where you had your lead comedians, you know, a girl singer, a boy singer, the dancing troops, a magician and so forth. Um, and therefore I spent so much time in Norfolk growing up that I knew of this place, Thurseford. But what I didn't know was that in this tiny, tiny hamlet, every Christmas took place a multi-million-pound musical review which had 55 singers 25 dancing girls full orchestra speciality acts and even doves which flew over the audience at the end uh, when everybody was singing white christmas the stage was 110 feet long there were 1500 people in the auditorium and the show took place in a grotto Uh, so there were real trees surrounding the audience christmas decorations hanging from the roof uh it's absolutely extraordinary the closest thing that there would be in new york would be the radio city christmas spectacular um but the is different in terms of it's far more interactive but a lot of the show takes place in the grotto in the aisles there are singers and dancers in the aisles as well as on the stage and musically it covers everything from rock and roll to broadway to serious moments of of christmas choral music all sung by the same singers. So they were looking for singers with uh, classical technique, but who could also cross over into singing musical theater because you were required to do everything. Um, So I saw this advert in the stage. and I thought, I'm going to go for that. Um, uh, It it was openly advertised, but it wasn't an open call in terms of everybody could turn up. You did have to send in your, uh, I'm going to use the American term now, resume, which we call a CV over here. But at this point, my resume only had amateur shows and school productions on it, uh, because of course I'd I'd done no professional work. Um, But I I had a professional headshot taken when I knew that I was going to have this gap year to uh, try and look for work. Uh, So I sent it off to the casting director with a covering letter. Again, this is all before email came in. I was just on the cusp of when these things were still sorted by a traditional old fashioned put it in the post. Uh, sent off my letter CV and uh, headshot but honestly didn't expect to hear back Uh, but I thought if you don't ask you don't get why the hell not Uh, and to my surprise I received a postal invitation to come and sing for the production team in London Uh, and they asked for two contrasting songs one of which had to be a classical song and then another in your specialism so uh, ignorance is bliss i took as my classical song lago alpactotum from the Barber of seville by rossini which i had learned as a one-off because it's a wonderful song and it's one which many people know figure Figaro, 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 um and i would wanted to do it just for the hell of it i think when i was about 17 18 um but I would never, never take that number into an audition these days. You know, I'm not i am not an operatic baritone, which is what that song requires. I wouldn't have the nerve to take it in now, but back then I didn't know any better. Uh, and then as my musical theater song, I did On the Street Where You Live, which was ingrained in my voice because I'd done it for all the drama school auditions and countless amateur shows. So I, I went in and, Afterwards, the casting director t- um, told me this story, probably about 12 months later, by which time I was doing Thirstford for the second time. Before I get to that, the casting director, when they've been sorting who to invite for auditions, they had two piles of resumes on their desk, a pile of people to offer an audition, and a pile of people to throw into the bin. I should have been thrown into the bin, into the trash, because my CV only had the amateur credits on it, but by an accident, an accident of fate, my CV got put on the pile of people to offer an audition and was not thrown away. So he said, you were standing outside and we didn't realize our mistake. And so we said, right, who's next? And they looked at my resume and said, how the fuck did this one slip through? And I came in and I sang, Figaro, 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 Figaro. And I left and apparently they turned to each other and said, well, we don't know how he slipped through, but thank fuck he did. And that is what gave me my first job they took the chance on an unknown untried 18 year old amateur who'd only i'd only just finished my a levels at this point i'm not quite sure what the equivalent is uh in the us but this is the last thing you do at high school um and the rest of the cast in those days it was average age early 30s so i was significantly younger than most other people in the show but for me it was wonderful it was like something out of an mgm movie And uh, yes, instead of trotting off to university or drama school, I found I was being packed up in the car to go to Norfolk to spend um, close to two and a half, three months putting on this absolutely wonderful show. And just going back to the Mickey Judy scenario, it was even more MGM because uh, we were literally putting on the show in a barn because Uh, that's what the building was. They just kept adding to it and adding to it. So it wasn't a conventional theatre at all, which is why they could have 110 feet you know, long uh, on, on the stage and why they could have real trees in the uh, auditorium. So it, it was every MGM movie dream that I'd had growing up come come true. And after, uh, all of a sudden, amongst my own kind and people who mentored me and cared about what I was doing and showed me the ropes. And going back to what I was saying about older people mentoring younger people, this this is what happened to me because the cast was primarily older people in their thirties. So they've been working about a good 10, 15 years maybe. And here was I on my first job, you know, 19 years old, Gaga. Um, And I looked up to these people, they had a stage presence. Uh, The sort of thing, you know, which you can't buy. You can't buy that from training. It's something that you learn and something that you absorb. And I was so lucky to work with some very, very talented people there who gave me their time. And I would watch them in rehearsals. And this is something I did on my second job as well. I would go in and just watch the rehearsal process Uh, not just the performers, but the creatives and how it was worked. And I I wanted to know how has the producer of the show put all this together? So I, again, that curiosity was serving me very, very well, because so much which I learned from Thursford has served me well in the career which I now have. Yeah, yeah
0: you were mentioning you were at Thursford for many years I think maybe nine or ten. Nine. I,
1: I did nine seasons yes so uh good I, I did do other things in the meantime but it was yes, kind of a what constant what
0: were some of your favorite songs or sketches that you got to perform in your time there
1: uh, I, I've described the show as best I can but you still have to just see it to get the madness of Thursford, the wonderful madness of Thursford I mean there, there was one year I was dressed up as a Christmas turkey Uh, In fact, I put that photo in my book because it still makes me laugh so much to see it. Um, But we we did all sorts, and I was Inspector Clouseau in a a dance routine of Pink Panthers, and I was very pleased with this. This is actually my concept, which I gave to the producer, and he put it in the show. Um, So I said, you could have Inspector Clouseau, you know, dressed up with a moustache and a hat and everything, and all the Pink Panthers are there, and he's chasing the Pink Panthers. And then at the end of the number, the Panthers jump onto the gondola, Oh, because that's something I didn't tell you. Next to the stage, there was a Victorian roller coaster known as a Venetian gondola switchback, Uh, and it was still in full working order, and they used it as part of the show. So they started with the carriages going round and round, and the Panthers jumped from the stage onto the gondola. Uh, so Clouseau uh, uh, didn't see them but I mean that was some mad stuff we did um, we even couldn't make it up uh, some of which I can tell you now and others which I can't tell you uh, <laughs> make of that what you will um, but uh, we had um, a particularly hilarious incident one night which which uh, sort of lives in infamy in my mind um, right at the uh, we had a, a sequence called the act two processional which was where the singers were in uh, cassocks and surpluses. And we used to stand in the audience and literally process in, um, you know, singing wonderful arrangements of things. I have to say very, you know, it's almost, Cecil B. DeMille-like in their biblical musical splendour. So we have a great arrangement one year of, you know, uh, do you hear what I hear, with, you know, the sopranos going, ah, you know, all, you know, you you expect Charlton Heston to appear on the mountain at any moment. Um, And the audience loved it because they were getting all these beautiful voices right up next to them. And then we would stop and uh, do another number and just sing static. Something very beautiful and very very still, something like "Bless This House," uh, um, um, or oh, the name of the song is stakes with "Panus Angelicus," things like that, um, uh, or oh, "Ave Maria" the Schubert. Um, and then afterwards, we would turn around and walk back uh, back onto the stage. And after the still number, one night, there was a woman in the audience who, during the interval, had drunk a pint of wine. And she was a carer for an old people's home and this carer drank a pint of wine and she was absolutely paralytic by the time we got to the act two processional so at the end of the still number she leapt out of her seat flung her arms around the neck of a baritone and leapt up on him with her legs wrapped around his waist that was brilliant that was wonderful and miss baritone had to shake the paralytic woman off and you know help her back into her seat and then we had to process up on stage and carry on with the number and you think, oh, gosh, well, well, you know, what could top that? Well, later on, we were doing the finale, which was my all-time favourite of segue because pieces of music were put together which you would never think could go together. So we had time to say goodbye, segueing into the hokey-cokey. So you go for this beautiful number, which would end with a tennis belting out No content! Then da 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 yeah you put your left arm in your left arm out in out in out shake it all about and streamers came down and everybody started doing the hokey pokey. and dancers came on stage dressed in animal skin costumes and uh, you know you know field mice and things like that field mice in sort of suits and ties and things
2: um
1: and we went uh, into uh, the Hokey Pokey, and then into Old Lang Syne, in which all the singers went, stream of cannons going mad, explosions everywhere, and we're all joining hands, we're singing Old Lang Syne, and bagpipes are walking in at all sorts. And at this point, the paralytic woman decides to run up on stage and join in the lineup. So she joins <laughs> the singers, holding hands, and this dancer dressed in a, in an a animal skin costume, dressed as this field mouse, uh, grabbed the woman and waltzed her off stage into the wings, um, you know, for her own safety, pretty much. And then, but, but of course this woman was told off by the management, but she was last seen weaving a little old lady in a wheelchair back down the pathway towards the car park, uh, never to be seen again. But I, I just howl when I think about it, because I think, gosh, that woman would have woken up the next day with the most terrific hangover and think, ah! I was dancing, and there was this mouse, and we were waltzing off stage. So, so and oh gosh, we we had all sorts um, going but, there. We had, and then one night the show got snowed off. So, you know, five inches of snow fell within five minutes, and uh, all the power in the building turned itself off. We had an emergency generator on site for just such an event, but the emergency generator kept going on, off, on, off. So fifteen hundred pensioners started screaming. As Pongo the Skunk on stage tried to maintain order over all these screaming pensioners, and the lights are going on, off, on, off. Uh, then we got we got to act two. And by this time, you know, there's a proper snowstorm outside with five foot snow drifts. And someone from management stumbled out on stage soaking wet and said, ladies and gentlemen, we've been advised by the the uh, police to close down the show. You know, you've got to leave now or you won't get out. The only word she failed to omit seemed to be alive. And, and all hell brothers that everybody was going around. And, and um, I couldn't get to my cottage because it, it was cut off, A tree had fallen down the road and there was no power in my house anyway because the whole village had lost its electricity. So I, I was literally evacuated to another village about five miles down the road with a uh, with a friend who had a house there where the power was on and they could reach. Uh, but that was it was three o'clock in the morning by the time we got there. So so yes, you, you couldn't make it up. And the next day, for the first time in over 30 years, the show was cancelled. It was snowed off. So there we are, with shovels and you know, shoveling the snow and getting on with it. And it was interesting at that point to see who who did support because at the end of the day we're professionals we've got to get the show back on the road because if the show is on then none of us work and so forth so literally pick up a shovel and and get on with it it might not have been our job description but it's you do everything is for the good of the show everything that you do has to be rather than just serving your own interest and this is some certainly something i've learned from the old veterans everything the good of the show comes first in everything
0: So I want to ask you, you were mentioning getting to work with some of these older stars. And one project I specifically want to ask you about is the sitcom pilot you produced, which featured- Oh
1: gosh, that, yes. Uh, So um, that was in two, 10 years ago now, 11 years ago, 2010. Um, So uh, my dad and I um, had this idea growing up. I, I won't give too much away about what the idea was about because, this project may come back. Um, but we, we had an idea based on real life experiences um, to do a sitcom. And again, I think it's an important thing as an actor to don't just wait for the opportunities to come to you, go and grab them, go and chase them. And the more strings to your bow, which you can have be it directing, writing, etc., in addition to performing, you know, the better chances you've got. Uh, but it was an idea we, we'd had for quite some time. And because of the contact I was now making, um, we had the opportunity to film a pilot for this sitcom. So uh, it was it was quite a large, and, and this is where I was able to ask some of the people who I'd known and worked with, whether they would come and do it. And I asked fenella Fielding, if she would come and do a cameo for us, just a, a few hours shooting. And again, in that spirit of helping somebody out at the start of their career, uh, Vanella was very, very kind to me and she she liked my entrepreneurial spirit. And um therefore she, when I said because yeah, she didn't have to do this. Uh, and again, because she she was a name, she is certainly in Britain, she is a cult figure uh from films that she did. And because like Carol Channing, Vanella was a one-off. Channing and Fanella were nothing like each other. But if you imagine the way that there was nobody else like Carol Channing, <laughs> similarly, there was nobody else like vanella Fielding uh and she she agreed to come and do this this cameo part uh which was a great honor for me because i think she'd been doing comedy for decades going back to the 50s oh my goodness the lady who was in this may not mean anything to to you in america but there's a cult british sitcom called hancock's half hour in the 50s which was a huge huge hit i thought oh my goodness you know i've got somebody in my sitcom pilot who was in hancock's half hour
2: um
1: it, again, it, it, it gives it gives one the confidence in one's work and the belief in that you're doing the right thing when people make this kind of effort for you. Um, so so we had quite a large cast, but uh, we had and Fenella Fielding after every single, you know, all the billing. As another veteran star, a friend of mine once said, darling, if you can't get top billing, get and after everyone else, <laughs> uh, which is what we did uh, with Fenella. Um so and she, she was quite an eccentric-looking lady, and it's, it's 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 not unkind of me to say that, because Fenella looked like she'd been frozen in a 1960s time war, as it were. She she was still where she, she wore two wigs. It's one of the great mysteries of life. What lay beneath Fenella Fielding's wig? Nobody knows the answer.
2: Um,
1: but she she would have two wigs on. One so, so one which sort of went sideways, and another which was sort of went up and down, and you know, huge eyelashes. In fact, Dusty Springfield once said, I've taken great inspiration from Fenella Fielding with regards to eyelashes. And uh, so she, she turned up on, on our set looking exactly the way she did in 1960s comedy films, which I'd watched Fenella in when I was growing up. Uh, so everything sort of ground to a halt uh, as the you know the star arrived and i i made sure that she had somebody to look after her because uh she's Penella was still you know you know hugely active she was in her 80s at this point but she was still very very active but nevertheless because she was this eccentric character it was perhaps best to monitor vanilla <laughs> and i say that with great love So we we gave her her an assistant for her personal pampering throughout the day. Uh, And uh, I provided various uh, costumes for her. So I'd found it in a Putney charity shop, this huge coat with a camp brown fur collar. So it, it just screamed Fenella Fielding. And I didn't know she'd want to wear a hat as well. So I brought a variety of hats, but her wigs bless her were so large that these hats just kept sliding off her head. And she said to her assistant, You know, darling, I think all these hats are just a bit too small.
2: Um,
1: But on screen, she was magic. She knew what she was doing. All the eccentricity just vanished. And she was on it. And there, you know, there was, uh, I I, I won't name names, but there were other people in the scene who perhaps wanted to have the limelight for themselves. You know, scene stealers, let's call them. And she wasn't having any of that, absolutely not. She knew every trick in the book, every ambush was spectacularly thwarted. And because she was so experienced, all she had to do was raise an eyebrow or with a look or something, and my God, you you are back with her. Um, And needless to say, her scene turned out to be the highlight of it, not just because she was who she was, but because of what she brought to it. Uh, so again, that generosity of coming to help help me, because I, I didn't have a name, uh, you know, I was trying to, to do something to get up and running. And, and she came and helped me, which was uh, which was absolutely wonderful. And with regards to that pilot, of course, the competition to try and get anything on television, well, in the theatre, but certainly on television, is extreme. But we actually did quite well with commissioning editors, one of whom turned around and said, oh, don't underestimate how well you've done to, to get this far and other people who said well you know we love the sitcom but it's not about the script it's about the advertising space we can sell around it you know so, so you know if this sitcom is made who is going to pay to have commercials in the middle of it and it came down to completely non-artistic decisions like that but we did get as far and this is sort of the frustrating thing uh we got to it was seen by the head of comedy at a major i won't let's say which one it was but a major british television network and they respond to saying, oh, yes, we, know we like it. We really like it. But there's not anything else like it out there. So we're going to say no. It's like, well, that's the point. And it is very frustrating when, as an artist, you're trying to do something different. And other people say, oh, no, but it's not like everything else which is out there. So this is safe. This is but you do what, whether it be theater, film, or television, when somebody will take that risk to do something that is different if it's a hit, it changes everything. And then everybody everybody, and everything wants to be like that. Uh, I mean, you may know in America, the sitcom *Faulty Towers, which is, every single episode is a classic. Uh, and now it's a worldwide brand, but it was read by somebody at the BBC who said, you know, this, this is just not funny. Who wants to see this? But of course it was made and proves everybody wrong. So yes, you cannot give up on something like that. I mean, the amount of projects I, I've had, I mean, some of of them, of course, get up and running and are very successful, but the amount of projects I've been involved with, be they things which I've initiated myself or things which I've been involved with for other people, which sadly don't work out. It's it's, it's not because they're not good. It's just because of, you know, not getting picked up or the competition and people not thinking outside the box, but you've got to try these things. And the more experience you get, you know, the more successful you become. So, for instance, when I did the sitcom pilot, it was the first production of which I'd gotten running myself. But I got people like Vanella, I got Paul Nicholas who was a big West End star and in his day was a big pop star and TV star who had a following. And uh, not long after that, I directed my first theater show, The Grand Duke. And again, was very lucky with the casting for that. But all the skills which I'd learned from putting something on with, with uh, a sitcom pilot, I transferred and it helped me with The Grand Duke. And again, it was sort of, oh, well, we worked for Martin on that sitcom pilot. That was very good. Yes, I'll do the next show for him. So nothing, nothing is ever wasted. Uh, even if a project doesn't come to light, it doesn't mean that it won't in years to come. Uh, the Queen's Gambit, which has just come out on Netflix, um, the uh, I think it was the producer or the writer was interviewed on television over Christmas. And he said, it's taken me 30 years to get The Queen's Gambit up and running, but it's smashed all the records for Netflix when it came out and it's been hugely successful. So, you know, it, it may take some time, but it'll happen when the time is right. I'm a great believer in that. And perhaps the timing wasn't quite right on the sitcom then, but I've since, of course, gone back through it and thought, oh no, we've got to tighten this up and so forth, you know, but the script, and so who knows? So it's a project still very dear to my heart. And if it ever gets up and running, I shall remember, that this is in part fact, due to the kindness of vanilla who came and did it because her name got interest on the product all those years ago. Uh, so, so yes, like I said, nothing's ever wasted. and Be grateful and be thankful. And also, don't be afraid to ask because I might have thought, oh, Fenella will never do that. But I asked, and she said yes, and it helped. It helped the product, and it helped me. And uh, I learned so much from her from doing that.
0: So, I want ask you about another project that you directed that also involved Fenella Fielding, although it didn't end up happening, which was the revival of Valmouth. So-
1: oh, my goodness, yes. Well, well, of course, here's a very good example of a show which would have been wonderful to happen in circumstances that it didn't. So, Valmouth is a show which I imagine not many people in the US know. Uh, it was uh, originally done in London and it came to the uh, United States. There were only about 14 performances. There weren't that many, and it was done off-Broadway. It's, uh, Balmouth is a mythical Edwardian spa town, which has aphrodisiac qualities in the waters, which centenarians annually gather to take so that they can be rejuvenated. Um, so the, the show is full of aristocratic Edwardian old ladies. Uh, there's a Roman Catholic cardinal who dances a tango. There's an exuberant black masseuse called Mrs. Yajnavalkya, who has magic fingers, so she says. Um, And and it's an extraordinary show, which ends with um, a a fire being sent from heaven and the entire village is destroyed in an apocalyptic tempest. Uh, And it it has no conventional plot. It's just full of extraordinary characters and eccentric happenings. Uh, The dialogue in the book is extraordinary. My favourite line, which I shall tell you now, which was one of Finella's, is uh, 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 Lady Parvula, whom Fenella played. Um, she is lusting after the Biddle Young Shepherd boy. And she says, oh, I want to spank the white walls of his cottage. Which uh, So it's full of lines like that. I mean, how do you make that up? Um, but Fenella, at the age of 29, played an elderly nymphomaniac, Lady Parvula, uh, and it it wasn't she wasn't first choice for the role, Sandy Wilson asked Vivian Lee if she would do it, and she uh, she turned him down, and then he asked another actress, and she couldn't do it either. Uh, so Fenella was third choice, but it made Fenella a star. At 29, she was on the brink of giving up completely to be a secretary or a hairdresser because she'd been discovered twice before and she'd been played the lead in a musical called jubilee girl which is at the at the victoria palace theater where hamilton is currently and that was a flop and she hadn't got any more work and she was on the brink of giving up and then this part came along which it wasn't written for her but it could have been it just fit her like a glove and it made her a star it also typecast her for life as a sort of a hello darling, sort of an infomaniac type of you know, luscious character. Um, but uh, this is a show I'd always loved. I'd known it even before I knew Fenella, I knew of Balmouth because much like yourself, I grew up and I wanted to know every musical that there was. And I would go and buy every cast album I could get my hands on. Uh, and Balmouth had been revived only once at Chichester in 1982. And Fenella and several other original cast members um, had returned to, uh, to play their original parts now being older. So more age appropriate for the old ladies that they were playing. And I had directed in 2012, my first show, the grand Duke, which was the first professional revival of this show, which was the last piece written by Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan played a, a very important role in my life. And, uh, again, I, I would cast it to the Hill time. It's very, very lucky. And the show was a success. And, One of the actors who came to see it was a chap named Simon Butteris, who I'd worked with several times. And in 1982, he had played the juvenile lead in Valmouth in the the only revival, which there'd been. And Simon had enjoyed what I'd done with the Grand Duke. And he asked, well, what are you intending to direct next? So I said, well, I would like to follow up on this opportunity to do another perhaps British piece, which has been neglected for a while. And he said, you should do Valmouth. And he said, you know, you know, there's, you know, Queen simpering for the 1982 production who would leap to see it all over again. And of course, the moment he said, it, I thought, I have to do this. And Simon said, you know, if you ask Vanella to do it, I'm sure she'd say yes. And I thought this, this would be incredible if Vanella could pull it off because it would be the third time she'd played it in her career. So she'd have played it at the start role that made her a star and she would have come back to it in the middle of her career at Chichester and then she'd almost be ending her career towards you know in her later years uh, by doing it again and because the part was always an old lady she was perfect for it she she was um uh, spot on and so I asked Penella would you, if I could do this would you do it and she said well I would say I would <clears throat> so I was given an introduction to Sandy Wilson who Of course, had written the show, and uh, he wrote book, music, and lyrics. He was one of those rare people who did all three, so he controlled the rights, and you know, it it was one hundred percent his piece. Um, So I I wrote as charming a letter as I could, uh, asking if it might be possible to speak with him about doing a potential revival, and I knew that I could get this up and running in a sort of a limited uh, run at the right theatre, so I wasn't talking about a, a huge cavernous West End theatre, but I thought, you know, with the right cast in a medium sized house, this will work. So, uh, but I was told, you know, this is Sandy's favourite show, it's his favourite thing he'd ever written, he's very tricky, was, you know, uh, and so Simon said, Sandy can be very tricky. Um, mm-hmm. So I wrote a charming letter, uh, and then I got this uh, voicemail, hello Martin, it's Sandy Wilson, I got to a very charming letter, you know, please do give me a call. And so we uh, had this chat and uh, he said, I warn you, if I if I give you the rights, you know, uh, he's very hard to please." And I said, Mr. Wilson, I assure you, if I was lucky enough to do your show, I'd want to do everything properly or not at all. And subsequently, I was invited round. And At this point, Simon said, that's great. But, oh, you know, Sandy can be very tricky. And then I spoke to Penella. She said, well, darling, that's wonderful. But, you know, Sandy can be very tricky. I spoke to John Owen Edwards my musical director friend who did Balmouth in 82 and he said we should talk Sandy can be very tricky I then rang Jean Bayliss who immediately rang our mutual friend Anne Wakefield who lives in LA and Annie had done the boyfriend with Jean and she'd known Sandy for years I got this phone call from Jean I've just got a message for you from Annie darling I said what's that she says to tell you that Sandy can be very tricky uh and he was extraordinarily devoted to these and. Uh, this came back to the fact that when The Boyfriend opened on Broadway, uh, Fewer and Martin, who'd uh, got the American rights, they changed the show very much from Sandy's original intention. In London, it was a small, intimate, charming show with sweet orchestrations. And Fewer and Martin said, no, that's not going to work in America. So they changed the orchestrations to this bright, brassy Broadway sound. And all the performances were far more um, exaggerated than they'd been in London. Sandy thought, this is awful. Uh, and he got into physical fights with and Martin, who ended up physically ejecting Sandy onto the sidewalk outside the theatre. They put a Pinkerton detective at the stage door and barred him from seeing it. So the first time he saw the show, um, after being barred from rehearsals, was an opening night when it was far too late. Uh, now, in truth, and people like Julie Andrews have said this, uh, the way that and Martin Americanized it, did make it accessible for... The Broadway market, which was different to the West End, but Sandy never saw it that way. So he was absolutely hell bent, but any production of his, which was going to take place, was going to be to his specifications. He wasn't going to make the same mistake again, uh, especially with a piece as close to his heart as Valmouth. So I, I knew the show inside out, and I went to his apartment, and um, I was ushered in. His partner showed me in, and Sandy was sitting there in this huge throne like chair. And he, he'd been quite ill and he he was he was nearly 90 at this point. So he was sort of dwarfed in his throne-like chair. And everywhere in his apartment there was memorabilia from his shows, especially The Boyfriend. And there was a wooden cut-out figure of Polly Brown, the lead character in the boyfriend, sitting in the fireplace. Um, and so I said, Oh, Mr. Wilson, first thing he says to me, I've spoken to Simon and Finella about you. I said, Oh, all right. So "Finella said she worked with you. What was all that about? So again I said about the sitcom, which tied in nicely so it proved I got a track record um, and we spoke about the show and he told me some wonderful stories about it which I put into wild card um, and eventually he said right let's get down to business I would very much like you to go ahead with this and I'd very much like to work with you on it and he said I warn you my contract states that I get absolute approval of everything and that isn't easy to get uh i was just so thrilled at this point of course i said well, well of course but there was a catch and that was that he wanted it to be in the west end he didn't want it in a smaller theater he wanted it categorically in the west end and i thought well here's a snag. here's a snag." because i i directed one show and it went well but that is not enough to get a west end production of this financed and you know with me at the helm and so forth but um that, that was the condition, so I thought, I, I can but try it. I spoke to various people, including Sandy's agent, who, I, I'll be tactful here, appreciated the difficulty that I was going to experience. Because unfortunately, I mean, to, to put on a show in, when was this, 2012? To put on a show in 2012, you're talking millions, millions of pounds to put on anything, let alone a very, and I say this with love, a very niche musical which is, you know, and it's certainly Edwardian period. So if you want to do it properly, you've got to have absolute integrity in the costumes and so forth. So that is going to cost. Uh, but as well, things have changed so much uh, from 1958 to now. Obviously in 58, Sandy was a very hot property. He just composed The Boyfriend, which was a smash all around the world. Um, but also in 1958, uh, certainly in, in Britain, I'm not sure about America, but certainly in Britain, the actors never got paid until the show opened. So you could rehearse for however long and the actors got nothing. Um, and they only got paid when the show opened. So, you know, if you close on opening night, you didn't get anything. Obviously, if, if the show then was a success, then that was all fine, but actors didn't get paid for rehearsals. So producers in those days could make an enormous saving on the fact that um, you, you could rehearse three weeks, four weeks or whatever, and there's no fees. I mean, how helpful is that for cash flow when getting something up and running? Um, so, and this was very much the case when Valmuth, uh first opened. And of course, none of the actors were getting paid. But if you put that into 2010 terms, but of course you've got equity, minimums and so forth, you know, it, it it just would not be possible. And I say this with respect, I'm not sure Sandy completely maybe appreciated that um, from, from a production point of view. I mean, I'm sure he was aware that things had changed, but in terms of, I am Sandy Wilson, I have written the most remarkable musical, which he had. And he certainly had strong opinions about it because he he is on record as saying individual songs in Balmuth are better than the entire score of My Fair Lady. Balmuth is extraordinary, but that is also quite a a, a claim to make about about My Fair Lady. but I, I did ask around and I got producers who were interested in doing a limited run, which is what I wanted to do. I also spoke to a producer who was interested in doing a one off, one night concert version for charity uh, in a in in aid of a charity and in honor of Sandy's 90th birthday, which was going to be in 2014. Um, and I thought this is ideal because you can cast it to the hilts because everybody could and being a concert version if necessary, they could be on book or whatever. Um, and it could, we could make it an extraordinary event, but unfortunately, Sandy didn't want that. He didn't want an all-star gala, I thought, even though it's in the West End. And he didn't want a limited run. He wanted an open-ended run in the West End, full-scale, lavish revival. And that was just not possible. So a, in a last-ditch attempt, I wrote to Sir Michael Codron, who produced the original in 1958. And at this point, he he's only just retired a uh, legendary producer, mostly of plays, but the occasional musical, one of which was Valmer. Uh, he had produced the original work by Joe Orton, Tom Stoppard, Alan Akebourne, Alan Bennett, and uh, so I wrote to him and uh, said, I'm not asking you to produce this because I realise that you, you have retired, but may I speak with you about the piece and have any advice? So we, he took me to lunch and it was absolutely wonderful. So he gossiped about the show. He confirmed the stories that Bertisse Redding, who had played the um, Mrs. Yashna Valkia in the original production had uh, fallen in love with Michael or so she'd said, but of course Michael was gay. So, you know, but she didn't get that very far. And uh, Batiste had to be confided in Fenella about that. She said, I'm in love with Michael Codron. And Fenella said, I think you'd be much better employed learning your lines um but anyway so we, we talked about it and he Michael Codron said to me what you need is some eccentric millionaire who loves Falmouth to fund the whole thing for you and that's Sandy but he won't do it uh, and it was a great shame so I mean the last thing Sandy said to me when I was there that day at the apartment was he took my hand and he's and he looked up and for the first time looked quite vulnerable after being this kind sort of fierce businessman and he looked up at me and said, I want to see Valmouth again before I die. Don't take too long. And the sad thing was that, dare I say, he probably could have seen Valmouth again before he died, if we'd been allowed to do it on a a more intimate scale, which which would have been to make it possible to put it on in 2012. But because he wanted to see this full scale revival, sadly, that never came about. And uh, so one wonders if we'll ever see Valmouth again. I mean, the. Sandy Wilson estate is bound to protect the interest of uh, of Sandy, obviously. Um, but I it's, I would love to do it. I would still love to direct it. But if, if somebody beats me to it, it, at least somebody, you know, at least the public will get to see this piece because it, 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 is, it is extraordinary. The score, very unlike Sandy's score for the boyfriend, uh, I describe it as a, an eclectic mix of Cole Porter and Sondheim. It's got that melodic line of Cole Porter very often, but that's that you know intangible something of Sondheim's work um uh so so it's a musical I would have loved and would Vanella have been able to have played Lady Parbula she was 85 by this point now I would have the romantic in me would have loved Vanella to have played it but it would have been a major undertaking Lady Parbula has numerous songs of her own there's a lot of dialogue uh Vanella you know, she, she was game to do it. So you wonder, oh, well, you know, if it had happened, would she, would she have been able to do it? But because it never happened, I can play in my mind this beautiful, flawless production of Balmouth with Fenella, age 85, better than ever, floating down the aisle in this extraordinary Edwardian costumes with this wonderful dialogue. Um, so that's an image which can never be taken away. But so that was Balmouth, a project which I would love to have happened didn't happen but my gosh I learned so much from the process and I, I met extraordinary people like Sandy Wilson and like Sir Michael Codron so as I said nothing is ever wasted.
0: Well so- we talked about the older stars but I would love to ask about your close friendships with two older composers um, Sondheim and Leslie Bricus. Who
1: you- ah right yes well uh, uh, Leslie uh, I was introduced to by Giles Brandreth Who's been a great mentor to me uh again you i know you know who he is but for the benefit of anyone listening of estates who may not have heard of giles giles is an extraordinary character he's been everything from a member of parliament to a theatrical producer to a television presenter to an actor he's, he's written biographies he's written uh books of theatrical anecdotes he, he's an extraordinary person with many many skills and he also knows everybody in the world so if you say oh i'm looking to get in touch with so and so chances are that he's having supper with them on Thursday. He usually is, be it the Dalai Lama or Leslie Brickus. he's usually, oh, I'm having supper with them on Thursday.
2: Um,
1: And there was a specific project, which uh, again is still ongoing, so I shan't say too much about it because this is a creative project which is still very much happening. Uh, But um, Leslie Bricus was um, able to advise me about about it because he was was close to the subject matter in some way, I shall say no more than that. and so, yes, I, I was, this, this is all at the same time as the Sondheim thing actually, because um, I uh, was making a music video of the Sondheim medley. I imagine we'll talk about this in a moment, but I came out of a tube one day and I, I found a voice voicemail and it was from this weird number, which I didn't recognize. It turned out to be a French number. And again, just one of those lovely moments, I'm standing on a crowded street in London. I listen to this voicemail, hello Martin, it's Leslie Bricus. <laughs> He was in France at the time, but he said, I'm going to be in London in a few weeks' time. And uh, he invited me to his apartments to meet him and his wife, his lovely wife, Evie. And uh, again, that that generosity, uh, which he extended. And we we talked for a long time. And uh, Leslie has a mania for collecting signed books, as do I. So, of course, I took my copy of Leslie's autobiography, which he signed and which Evie also signed as well. Um, But this all came about at the time that uh, Sondheim, uh, both as a person and, and as a musical figure, came into my life in quite a big way because I had been working as an actor for nine years, including doing all these Uh, But between Thursfords, I'd started doing my own creative projects like directing shows um, and having my own one-man show as well. Because just briefly, I... Um, uh, in 2009 i did my first one man show i have two voices i have my normal male tenor voice and also um well perhaps i better just demonstrate uh, i'll demonstrate with a song from naughty marietta so my other voice sounds like this <laughs> I do the soprano voice as well. Uh, And I had a one-man show called The Falsetto, which uh, I sang in in both voices. And this in time led to the act which I have now, which is the main focus of my performance work. I am one half of a West End musical theater duo called Ferris and Mills. Uh, So uh, my colleague, Dominic Ferris and I um, have been doing shows since 2015. uh, Dominic is a wonderful, wonderful pianist who also sings. Um, I've also obviously got these two voices and we have very different skill sets in terms of I um, know a lot about and are very at home with the older repertoire legitimate stuff and Dominic is much more of a sort of a pop Elton John-esque singer but he's classically trained as a pianist and we meet in the middle with our great love of the great British and American songbook um so circumstances brought about after my last Thursford that Dominic and I uh formed a creative partnership to become Ferris and Mills yeah. and uh, so for the act one finale of our show we wanted something completely different a showstopper and I remembered um two things so Dominic and I had the first thing we did before our show we uh put on a drama school's production of Side by Side by Sondheim um, uh, which uh, was something which just came about organically one of these things that fell into place which was terribly useful considering what was going to happen. Um, and inside by side, there is um, a piece called the Conversation Piece, and it goes on for about 12 minutes. And it's a mashup, a very elaborate mashup uh, of Sondheim's works up to Pacific Overtures. And that coupled with another mashup, which I remembered, which actually came about from Giles Brandreth, because in 2003, long before I knew Giles personally, I was still at school, uh, Giles had a West End show which then toured called Zip, a musical review hundred musicals in 90 minutes. And the start of the show was a mashup medley called 16 opening numbers in two minutes. So remembering the conversation piece from side by side and also the mashup from Giles' show Zip, I said to Don, why don't we do some kind of a mashup medley? So we created something called 20 songs in four minutes, which had everything in it from Disney to Gilbert and Sullivan, to swing, to jazz, to Kate Bush, to La Traviata. And all of these songs went together. And at our debut show, um, it, it it was, it's the thing which people went away remembering. So, okay, mashup medleys are, you know, the way forward, as it were. They, they could become our calling card. And the producers who presented us for our debut Ferris & Milne show were later that year producing at Theatre Royal Drury Lane, Stephen Sondheim's 85th birthday gala. And, uh, It was just one of these. I said to Dominic, "We have to be in this." And again, it's one of these where you just have to grab the opportunity because, of course, they were going for very much an all-star cast.
2: Uh,
1: But if you don't ask, you don't get. So, being a bit creative, emailed the producers and said, "Oh, I'm I'm sure you've got people crawling over each other to to be in this gala. But if you would like something different, if you would like something bespoke just for your evening, you've heard our mash-up: twenty songs in four minutes." would you like to have 20 Sondheim songs in four minutes? And I thought, oh, this will take ages. I'll have to talk to the director, they'll have to talk to the MD and so forth. They emailed back in 24 hours and said, you're booked. So I'd never had a West End gig so easily, but of course then Dominic and I had to go away and create it. Uh, So during the course of uh, the rehearsal process, 20 Sondheim songs in four minutes became 33 Sondheim numbers in five minutes because it was going so well and so organically we didn't tell anybody but it was going to be longer than that we you know we just we'll, we'll just turn up and do it because there were stage managers saying oh no you can't go over the four minutes and yes of course we won't i thought no they'll just see the medley and it'll be fine fortunately it was um but this medley um was far more intricate musically and lyrically on every level than the 20 songs uh because you're dealing with sondheim material and it's you know it, it, it's it's oh so, everything is there for a reason every note every lyric it has its meaning and if you try and change that you know woe betide you basically because it's you know it, it's it's so specific so we try to keep as much musical integrity as possible but at the same time be very inventive with it so it started I and mean, i knew sometimes work very very well i always had dominic as more of a musician than a theatre theatrical uh, performer, knew of it, but but if we hadn't done that production side by side, he would never have been as familiar with it as he needed to be at this point. So I put together on paper some ideas, starting with "Ladies and Gentlemen, may I have your attention, please?" Because I'd always wanted to play Tobias. I'd auditioned for it twice in my career and not got it. So I thought, I want to stand on Story Lane stage and sing that. So for purely that selfish reason, we opened. With it but also as well in terms of constructing the medley it was also a way of getting their attention ladies and gentlemen may i have your attention please they straight into bit by bit putting it together and then gradually more and more songs on top of each other until eventually we have um there's a moment where we have send in the clowns i'm singing mm-hmm. send in the clowns and dom is singing if you can find me i'm here from evening primrose and uh, both of which are in Wallstein, but we had to get them just right and it's entailed changing, not the the melody, but the key of Send in the Clowns sometimes, Uh, and eventually we got it perfect, but when eventually we we did get to meet Steve and he was asking us about the construction of the medley, uh, I told him that, I said, oh it took us three hours to get Send in the Clowns to fit, with if you can find me I'm here, and he just cocked his head to one side and went, that's not long, because of course he's famous for uh, taking so much time over his work but also later on in the piece we we actually have three uh songs happening at the same time the accompaniment is uh putting it together Da, 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 da 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 slow down whilst i'm singing or they find each other in the crowded streets and the guarded parks whilst dom is singing phone rings door chimes in comes company over the top so we've actually got the three happening at the moment um so we took great care over it and We didn't show it to the production team until the day before the show, when we were invited to a rehearsal so they could see what they got. And we were thinking, oh, are they going to suggest changing things musically or the way we staged it? They they didn't touch it. They just let us do it. Um, And the next day we're at Drury Lane. Uh, So this was, uh, again, it was one of those moments where you look back and think, yes, this was a life changing thing, even if you don't realise at the time what it's going to do for you. but I mean, that that day in particular, obviously I wanted to do a good job, but I, I was aware of the the privilege of being able to do this, not just for Sondheim's Birthday Gala, but I thought, uh, and this was inspired by another veteran friend of mine, Eileen Page, who some years before had played Old Heidi in the original London production of Follies. And then sometime after that, they did a, a BBC radio broadcast of Follies on stage at Drury Lane. And Eileen stood on stage at Drury Lane and she sang One More Kiss, and she was thinking of that time when in 1939, she had attended the last matinee at Drury Lane before it closed for the duration of World War II. And at 12 years old, she sat at the back of Drury Lane watching Ivan Avello in the Dancing Years. And then all these years later, she was on stage singing. On, on in a, Again, it's, it's important. And she thought to herself, she, she stopped the show, there was a recording, there was proof that Eileen stopped the show that night. And as the audience was going mad, she stood on stage at Drury Lane and she thought, if I never have anything else in life, I will always have this moment. And that's the attitude that I went in with that day at Drury Lane. I'm thinking, I'm standing here on the same stage as Ivan Avello, but Noel Coward had cavalcade here, but Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews played My Fair Lady. All the theatrical history, not just the 20th century, but everything that spans back because Drury, there's been a theater on the site of Drury Lane for centuries. I thought, you know, if my career ends tonight, nobody can take away the fact that I've sung Sondheim's work, Center Stage, Jury Lane, I had five minutes all to, with Dominic, but all to myself, if you know what I mean. Um, and of course we were the unknown act on the bill. And they, we were the second act, uh, the second act in the second half, if that makes sense. So we were second on the bill. And I I'd told another veteran actor friend of mine named Alan Curtis, who had directed and produced many shows in his time. He said, where on the bill are you? I said, second in the second act. And he just said, don't you realize that's the strongest slot in the whole show? You know, that's where I always used to put my best comics. The audience come back after the interval, they get settled and then bang, you've got them. And it, it proved to be absolutely correct. So we're um, in the in the wings and we hear ladies and gentlemen, Martin Milnes and Dominic Ferris. And we come down the steps to center stage. And there's this kind of this, light applause so well who who are these people what are they and you know it, it's it's polite but sort of well who the hell are you and we start this introduction and uh which is very much along the lines so, of um now when we were asked to be in the show you know we were asked to find and perform one special number by stephen sondheim but there's just so many to choose so where do we start i said so, well ladies and gentlemen you know um We whittled it down and uh, we decided to sing 75 Sondheim numbers, but the producers told us that was too many. So we've now got it down to 33 Sondheim numbers, but we've only been given five minutes of stage time. And then I said, which has become our catchphrase, we couldn't possibly get through 33 Sondheim numbers in five minutes. And you look at the audience and you wait and you wait and you say, or could we? And that got a big laugh. And then we got into it and it was the most extraordinary thing but the audience just absolutely got it. So from this tepid applause, they were with us the whole way. And um, I'd actually made, which is a bit naughty, but I'd asked if I could, uh, we asked if we could make a video recording of the, of the medley. And we said, we'll bring in our own camera crew and put, you know, just just our number, film from the back of the stalls. We just like to have it. And we were told for, for various reasons <laughs> uh, from the owners of the theatre that this could this could not take place for whatever reason, go figure, um, but we thought we've got to do this. So separately, we re- recorded a, a music video of it, which is another story, but I'd, I'd left in our dressing room next to the tannoy, I'd got my digital voice recorder so we could get the live recording. Um, and you, you can hear how the audience reacts to it. And it, it was quite extraordinary. At the end, it 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 did go down very well, fortunately. We we weren't able to leave the stage for for a while after after the number, um, and it was one of those life changing moments. And um, after after the show, it received a lot of attention, which is lovely. And Julia McKenzie, who of course is one of the foremost interpreters of Sondheim's work for many many years, she pulled me aside at the after show party. And she gave me 20 minutes all to all to myself and we just sat at a corner and we i had this wonderful chat and she said i have to tell you when i heard that this medley was happening i was dreading it i thought it's going to be awful and she's i was listening in my dressing room and i heard it over the tannoy and i was just so relieved and so surprised because she she knew that we we'd done it with integrity and so forth um so steve was not actually at the gala night it was his birthday gala but he wasn't present uh, because he'd had engagements in New York inevitably which had kept him there Um, but within 24 hours of the gala happening he'd heard about this medley and wanted to hear a recording of it so Dominic and I made sure that he received which was passed on to him the recording we've made from our dressing room on the tannoy because we thought this is a bit of a he may love it or he may hate it But at least if he hates it, he can hear that the audience loved it. Um, So, um, so that's a recording which went went off to him. So it reached him, I think, probably beginning of November. The gala was end of October, so beginning of November he would have received it. And of course, every time I had an email in the next few weeks, I'm like, (gasps) and it never was. It never, it never was until uh, it got to a few days before Christmas, and I'll never forget it ever. It was about 20 to 1 in the morning, UK time. And of course, New York is five hours behind. And I was about to close my laptop down and I felt my phone vibrate. And it was an email. So, all oh, right, who's this? And I see Stephen Sondheim, subject from Stephen Sondheim. And it was 20 to 1 in the morning. I just went, oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, very, very charming email. Dear Martin Mills and Dominic Ferris, I finally had the chance to sit down and listen to the medley. And he said some very nice things about it indeed, how it had made him laugh, and that's, you know, how he loved how it had worked musically. And, you know, and very Merry Christmas while I'm at it, best Stephen Sondheim. And I just thought, oh my goodness. And and I had flashbacks at that very moment to 16-year-old Martin learning being alive in, in a singing lesson and you know, marking up the score and so forth. And and here, here was approval from, from the man himself of something we created of his work. Um, so we obviously emailed back to say thank you and said, well, we're about to release a music video, which we built, again, just very fortunate, I think, that we'd actually made a proper cinematic music video of it rather than just say one static shot from the back of the stalls at Drury Lane. Um, so we released this video, which again, went down quite well with Sondheim and musical theatre fans across the internet. So we were able to set, send him that. And subsequently, we got into um, uh, a, a very nice email correspondence. And he said that when he was going to come to London, he'd, you know, he'd be you know, delighted to receive us and so forth. Um, so to cut a very long story short, we, we, we began this correspondence. And then in 2016, so within the first year, we were booked to come to New York. So uh, a longtime friend and mentor of mine, who you've interviewed, Steve Ross, had subsequently become a great friend and mentor of Ferris and Milnes as well. Uh, and Steve had arranged for us to uh, dip our toes in the New York musical scene, as it were. Uh, and so we were able to email Steve and so we're going to be in New York. And Steve very kindly invited us to come round to his house for drinks. And we dis- discussed them, but we discussed all sorts of things. Uh, he was very interested in the construction of the medley, uh, but we also, managed to establish, I mean Steve has many, many interests. One of which is English cathedral choral music, of which Dominic is an expert, because he grew up in that tradition. And another great passion of Steve's is old movies, British and Hollywood, well all, all, but especially British and Hollywood movies, which of course is my specialist subject. Um, So it's been wonderful. I have learned a great deal about Old Hollywood direct from Steve and he's recommended films that I uh, can see, films which I didn't know. and he's, he's been very, very supportive of, of our work. And I've met with him in London again when he came over for the opening of Follies. And then in 2018, I was in New York to do the workshop for a new Broadway musical. And so he very kindly gave me his time when I came over then um, as well. Um, and of course, it, it's been sort of a, a bonanza period for him recently, certainly in London with the National Theatre's production of Follies and the truly terrific production of Company. Uh, which opened with uh, a lady playing Bobby. In fact, Steve actually confided that to Dom and me on the first visit. we were talking about Follies. He said, but have you heard about the other show? And we said, oh no, what's that? He said, ah, maybe they haven't announced it yet. He said, there is gonna be a new production of Company with a female Bobby. So we, we got that hot off the press, which was very, very exciting. And also that first trip in New York, he invited us to see the dress rehearsal of Sunday in the Park at City Center which was just wonderful and I, I we we were in the balcony so the, the guests were in the balcony the production team was obviously in the stalls and I could lean over and I could see Steve scribbling away and by the time we got to the interval there were pages and pages and pages of notes <laughs> all of which I'm sure the actors would, would have been thrilled to receive to get that first-hand feedback from him. Uh, but no uh, Steve has been uh, an extraordinary influence uh, both professionally and, and indeed now personally and uh, to actually have his approval of the work which Dominic and I have done, similar the way to when I uh, directed The Grand Duke, Mike Lee, who is an Oscar-nominated and BAFTA-winning film director, came to see the show. And again, I've, I've kept in touch with him and he has championed my work. And I don't say this to be arrogant, and I hope it doesn't come across that way. But when you have figures like that who say, no, I like your work, you're doing the right thing, and so forth, and believe in you, that gives you that belief to think no I am doing the right thing because of course it's it's a very cruel industry and sometimes there may be moments when you doubt yourself or you doubt what you're doing and um, for instance I had um, a casting director once who uh, said but I wasn't talented enough to be doing a show which I'd actually done a few times before in my career it was a repeat engagement and I thought, hang on so if he says I'm not talented enough to be doing one of that before but if if Sondheim and Michael say this about my work then I'm going to keep that confidence to to know what I'm doing and keep on doing what I'm doing so keeping the humility because the best people as I said there is no arrogance about them um that they they just stay humble and crack on with the work and that is something I've learned from them so there is a big difference I think between being confident and being arrogant I like to think that I can be confident about the work that I'm doing because I've had the approval and the backing of people like Sondheim and Mike Lee, but also as well, I'm talking about Gene Bader, so I'm talking Fenella Fielding and uh, indeed Virginia Campbell, who I would love to talk to you about after this. Um, and to say, no, I- I'm doing the right thing. So you can use that inspiration to spur you on to do other things and greater things in your career. But, I mean, I-, I-, I never anticipated when I was that 16-year-old singing Being Alive in a in a lesson but one day I, I would get to speak with Sondheim himself so, so it, but, but you must never put limitations on anything you're doing because the sky's a the limit
0: so forward <laughs> to today I'm curious to ask you about your wonderful book your memoir wild card so how did this originally come to be the idea
1: um it, it came about um uh, this was actually not a project which I started myself uh, and whereas something like The Grand Duke or the sitcom or Valmouth was sort of self instigated, this idea, well, this opportunity fell into my lap because I have a very wonderful friend named Austin Mutty News who wrote a book called Pocket Venus about his friendship with an older film star, a lady named Mildred Shea, who was a starlet at MGM in the 30s and was Joan Crawford's bitchy French maid in The Women. And I met his publisher, Tom Perrin, of Zuleika Books. And it was a small talk talk chat, you know, you're standing there at the buffet. Oh, so how do you know Austin? So I said, Oh, well, as a matter of fact, we have a number of friends in common because I've had a number of uh, film stars in my life as well. And oh, I know this sounds crazy, but I used to live with a 100 year old Hollywood film star. And Tom said, Really? I said, Yes, yes. And our husband was a war hero. He fought at Dunkirk and on D Day. And after a few more minutes of me telling these stories, Tom says, have you ever written any of this down? And I said, well, but for my own memories, yes, but I've never published anything. And he said, oh, well, could you, you, know, could you write something? There, there could be a book in here. So I went away and wrote a sample chapter of what I assumed the book would be, which was to be a, a book primarily about my veteran friends with at its heart, the characters of Ginny and Lenny. Um, so I wrote a sample chapter about the day I met Ginny and Lenny and I wrote about Steve Ross taking me up to the flat in Chelsea and my first impressions of meeting Ginny and her telling me about working with Cecil B. Mill, and how she'd stood up to him and all these wonderful things. Uh and I submitted it to Tom. And he emailed back and said, Oh, this is good, you know, could could we meet for lunch and discuss it? Oh, they're interested. And when I got there, he said, Okay, we, we love your writing. There is definitely a story to be told here but can we talk about the approach of the book? And I said, okay, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, the the stories and the anecdotes about these old stars, which you've put down, are fascinating, but I'm going to have trouble selling it commercially, because the market is flooded with anecdote books. And most anecdote books which are on sale, they are people's first-hand stories, as opposed to second-hand stories. So, for instance, uh, when Roger Moore wrote his anecdote book, they are his first-hand stories of, I worked with Marilyn Monroe. This happened to me with Joan Collins. I said this to David Niven, and so and so forth. Whereas I would be saying, I knew Virginia Campbell, and she danced with Gene Kelly on Broadway, and this is what happened when. I... So he said that is difficult to package, but it doesn't mean we can't use the stories, because what actually interests us the most is you. I'm like, hmm, what do you mean? Because I think well, and they said yes, because why did somebody so young become so close to so many older people? he said that's where we think the story lies you can still include all the stories of the people they knew and they worked with but i want to know who's as somebody who, who who's never met you why, why did a 25 year old start living with a 98 year old 99 year old i thought like, oh yes well i, I suppose uh, that's different so he said can you write about that how open and honest about yourself are you willing to be so i thought oh what the hell because I, I I've been through you know we, we all have we all go through quite a lot don't we? But I was in a place where I was very satisfied with who I was. I was very happy within myself. Any issues which I'd had had fortunately been resolved some years before. So I felt well. I'm in a position now to talk about this and how I got to this place. And of course, by as I intimated earlier, by knowing these remarkable people, that they have influenced and changed my life very much for the for the better. And here was a chance to explain why. So I went back to the laptop and I thought, right, how do I put myself into basically the centre of this story without sounding like a, an ego maniacal tosspot, let's say, because of the, I because I'm still thinking, who am I to talk about myself when Lenny knew Churchill when and, and all the other war heroes I'd known? I, I volunteer for a military charity and I'd known. Battle of Britain fighter pilots who flew in 1940. I've, I've been lucky to know it's extraordinary people. So I'm thinking, well, who am I in, in comparison? Um, so I, I tried various things and none of them were sitting right with me. And eventually I just thought, you know, just strip everything away, just write from the heart, write exactly how you feel. And I put that down on paper and I wrote about how I felt when Ginny passed away. And that chapter subsequently went into the book as a whole when I'm writing about how I felt immediately after her funeral, after I'd said goodbye to her. Uh, so I sent that to Tom and he said, this is exactly what we want, we'd like to offer you a contract uh, to write a full book. Uh, so at this point, I found myself, right, well, I've, I'm, I'm putting it out there, as it were, so it's not just about my friends, it's, it's about me. So I had to talk about my years at school, how I felt very isolated, as if nobody, I couldn't relate to anybody and so forth the rejection I'd suffered at the hand of my peers and also involved in this was very much my coming out story which is obviously very personal because uh, I, I was a late developer shall we say because I'd had no friends growing up with you know at school to talk or, or try trial or whatever um I, I came to you know I was 20 I was 24 nearly 25 by the time I, the penny finally dropped and I accepted everything um and of course, by this point, I was great friends with those stars and uh, they helped me whether they knew it or not, they did through that very delicate period. So for all this has got to go in and to make sense of why the friendships uh, were so special to me. I had to go right back to the beginning to explain I had no friends, but the stars I saw in the films were my, you know, were felt like my friends. So therefore in later years to actually, to really become friends in person with Vanilla Fielding, with Peggy Cummins, who I'd seen in these movies growing up, that that, that was extraordinary. Um, but so. it was, personally speaking, um, therapeutic and cathartic are not exactly the right words, but it did it did it did help. It put a lot of things to rest. Uh, so it wasn't as if I was at the laptop, bawling and streaming with tears as I was reliving darker moments which I'd been through. It wasn't that at all. It was emotional, but. Uh, but I was able to keep us perspective, but it really made me realize how things in the past had affected me, be it negatively or positively. And again, going back to what I said, I realized just what Mary Rogers had started when she sent me that, which I didn't fully appreciate before. I hadn't thought about it in that way. Um, So I finished the book by the end of 2019 and we had a book launch on March the 12th, 2020. So the day that Broadway shut down because of the uh, virus, we had our book launch and the virus had just come into this country as well. So and it was it was, it was was weird because we, we'd heard about the virus, but we didn't really need to worry about it. The week of my book launch on Monday, it was going, oh, yeah, yeah, this virus is coming. Oh, wash your hands. Be careful. Tuesday, pretty much the same thing. Wednesday, the day before the book launch, it was like, oh, this is getting serious now. And I had some of my older friends started ringing me saying, I don't feel like I should come out to the book launch tomorrow night because we're being told to stay in. And then Thursday, the 12th of March, everything was going potty in the headlines. And I thought, oh, my goodness, can this event happen? Should this happen? But the venue, which we booked for it, which is one of the drama schools where I lectured, they were happy to have us. So fortunately, the event did go ahead. Nobody got sick. Everybody had a wonderful time. And then within a week, we were in the first national lockdown over here. Um, and I thought it was going to be a really bad time to have a book come out. It turned out to be a very, very good time because people were at home looking for things to do and they were reading. Um, And I have been, I don't want to sound strange when I say this, but I have been quite overwhelmed by the response because for so many years when I grew up, I thought I'm the only person who felt this way. I'm the only person who had this kind of love of Broadway and Hollywood at school and so forth. And the amount of people who got in touch with it, and these are people I don't know. These are readers who have come across the book through social media or word of mouth or whatever. But people have emailed me through my website to say I had to check that this wasn't my life story I was reading because everything you've written is what I felt. I was this person at school as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, people have said that it's helped them. I had a, a very, very kind email from a gentleman who said that he'd started reading Wildcard just before his husband was taken into hospital with COVID. And he read it throughout the whole period when his partner was, uh, his husband, sorry, was was in hospital as a kind of distraction or something to do. And he said, I finished reading it just before my husband passed away. And it really helped me throughout that period because I related so much to what you had been through and it made me laugh and all these inspirational figures. Uh, I always said when I was writing, if, if one person, if, if it helps one person, then I'll, I'll be satisfied. I've done a good job, but I'm thrilled that it seems to have helped quite a few people. Of, of many age ranges from very, very young to older readers. And I'm pleased that with younger readers, they've discovered not just my friends in the book, uh, but also other names, which are mentioned again, to spark that curiosity. What made them so great? Who did they do? What else did they do? Who, who else did they work with? So they've discovered films, shows, people, that they would never have thought to have researched before. And for older people, they've come to it saying, oh my goodness, I remember seeing Peggy Cummins in this movie when it first came out in the fifties. And it's so lovely to hear about her and see that name again. So it's um, also, also as well, uh, I've had some older people, I had a lady in her seventies email and say, I've never been to a gay bar before, but your, your description of it sounded great fun. I've been enlightened <clears> about <throat> some of the you know, personal experiences I've had. Um, so I very much hope people continue to find an audience. It's, it's turned out to be a great word of mouth book uh that's uh it, it's taken off and one person's recommended it to another and so forth i am now in the process of turning Card into a one-man show which i hope will continue to um uh, sp- uh pass the baton of course as i say and i was inspired to do this by elaine stritch because one of my, the most inspirational things i've ever seen is elaine stritch at liberty how a great star can hold an audience just herself in a stool uh, Elaine Stritch did it, and uh, Lillian Montevecchi I saw, she was phenomenal, she had the audience in the palm of her hand, and also Debbie Reynolds I saw live, two acts of her in the West End, she didn't even have a stool, she did the whole thing standing up,
2: um,
1: and just hold it, and I find that very inspirational, and with the way that Stritch constructed her show, it, it took you through her life, so it was a biographical piece, but she not only did the great Elaine Stritch songbook, because of course everybody wants to hear the Ladies Who Lunch and Why Do the Wrong People Travel, songs that she'd done in her career, but she also found other songs, perhaps which she'd never sung before, but they commented on the narrative of her life at that particular moment, which made it either very, very funny or very, very touching. So basically it was like her life was a musical, and that is how I've constructed the Wildcard Stage Show. So that there is music interweaving in and out. There are songs which comment on the narrative of that point um, to, to make it, I hope, a fun, uh, informative and entertaining evening. To uh, So we have started workshops rehearsals for it. And of course, it's, it's a very emotional experience at first, which I also found when I recorded the audiobook, because the, the audiobook is out on Audible, and I recorded the narration for that as well. And I found when I was in a recording booth, laying down the narration, that when I was describing these scenes, be they happy scenes or or the darker times in my life as well, all the images kept flashing back in my mind, far more vividly than they've ever been since the moment that they happened. And that made it a very emotional experience. And I found that when I was doing the show on stage in the first workshop rehearsal, and I was talking about things, it was exactly the same experience. So yeah, uh, but I, like Stretch, I'm not afraid to open up about these things. I mean, it's all in the book anyway, so why the hell not do it on stage? But it is also a different experience to stand there and say all these things to people directly in front of you. At least with the book, it's on paper, but you're not there when they're reading it. The show is going to be um, hopefully um, you know a, a very unique personal experience. Um, but it's a, it's a show to get on with in 2021, because of course, whilst we are still under these conditions, theaters are closed again. In the UK, and we're doing this podcast at the beginning of January 2021. And as of this moment in January 2021, the London theatres are closed again. But when they do open again, if social distancing is still a thing, then hopefully a show in which only one person comes out on stage will be something that is logistically possible to do. Uh, but at the same time, I also hope that both the book and the show will be a tribute to these remarkable people who I've been greatly privileged to know. Um, and uh, some of them are still with us and thriving, and some of them sadly have left us. Ginny and Lenny, who I lived with, um, mm. have have left us. Um, as has Fenella, sadly. Uh, but I, I have photographs of all these people around me all the time in my room at home or whatever, because I, I like to have them there. It makes me very, very happy. Leroy Reen said the same thing in his podcast to you about having his posters and his memories up there. It's, it's not an ego thing, it just makes you happy. And you think, yes, I've been privileged to know these people and they're they're, they're still here. And so many older people took me under their wing. I now like to think that I'm doing the same for younger people. Um, I lecture in the history of musical theatre at various London drama schools, and I make the lectures as fun and interactive as possible. So it's not, oh, get out your notebook and, oh, yes, write down this date, 1943 and this sort of... I get the students on their feet, you know, acting scenes out from Showboat, Oklahoma, West Side Story, and we discuss what what made this so great and so forth. Um, And a lot of people, you know, they they, they want this knowledge and so forth. Um, So I I look after, you know, several people and advise them on careers and so forth. In fact, in a direct way, um, Peggy Cummins, who was a wonderful actress, Hollywood star and above the title star in the 1940s, uh, she's forever remembered for doing a cult film noir called Gun Crazy, in which she plays a trigger-happy femme fatale. And this is still a seminal film. Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino say that it's it's one of the, you know their top films. In fact, Quentin Tarantino, when he met Peggy, he fell prostrate at her feet because he was so in awe of seeing this um, this woman who gave, in the words of some critics, the most ferocious female performance in American cinema. And Peggy, I knew very well for the last few years of her life, and I now mentor her grandson who uh, went on a musical theatre course and opened in the West End in Les Miserables in December 2019. He opened it on Peggy's birthday, Peggy sadly is no longer with us, but December 18th 2019 Harry made his West End debut in Les Miserables on Peggy's birthday and on the same day in 1938 when Peggy was 13 on her 13th birthday she made her West End debut in a children's review and uh, 81 years later there was harry making his own west end debut on the day that peggy did on her birthday so all these beautiful coincidences um but no sir i mentor harry i mentor other people and i want younger people to discover how much these older stars have got to offer how much we can learn from them and it's uh the affinity with old stars continues uh even after the book came out uh we were in lockdown Dominic and I were looking for projects that we could put together, even though he was at one end of the country, I was at the other in uh, in lockdown and isolation at this point. And we came up with the idea that the wartime song, We'll Meet Again, would become an anthem of lockdown and isolation, mm-hmm. with very inspiring words. The, the song was a huge hit in the UK during the war. You may know it in America, We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again, some sunny day. The lyrics were suddenly as relevant during 2020 as they were when Vera Lynn recorded the song in 1939. So Dominic and I got together 22 West End stars and everybody filmed their sections in isolation and we edited the video together. And... And it was done as a valentine, really, for the theatre industry, for a morale booster, because, of course, everywhere was shut, everywhere was dark. We didn't know how long it was going on for. And an old star came personally into our lives and my life, you know, who, who I, whose work I knew and admired, but I'd never met her before. But Dame Vera Lynn, at this point, she was 103. Dame Vera Lynn, the sweetheart of the nation during World War II. Who sang "We'll Meet Again" and there'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover? And in the year 2000, when the 20th century, of course, came to a close, there was a poll in Britain about who most personified the spirit of Britain in the 20th century, and the overwhelming response was that it was now Dame Vera Lynn. Uh, so we wondered if could we get Dame Vera to record a personal message to accompany our "We'll Meet, mm-hmm. Meet Again" video. And fortunately, again, fate, kismet, whatever you want to call it. Now, but you'll see where this goes. In 2012, I did my one-man show, The Falsetto Sings Gilbert and Sullivan, um, to a private society, one of the members of which turns out to be Dame Vera Lynn's personal assistant. I didn't know that at the time. But in February 2020, just before lockdown, before anybody's thinking about We'll Meet Again, we did a show, and Dame Vera's PA, Susan, came to see that show and re- so we renewed the acquaintance lo and behold just a few weeks later lockdown will meet again and dame vera's pa has suddenly been beamed in, almost out of nowhere into our lives at just this precise moment so we asked susan might dame vera provide us with a message and within 24 hours dame vera had recorded a beautiful Audio piece for us. She didn't sing. She didn't sing it uh, in her later years, but she said it's Dame Vera Lynn here, and so and we put that on the beginning of the film at the very end. And the film ends with Dame Vera Lynn over music saying, "And we will all meet again some sunny day," and it's just wonderful. And uh, it, it was gold dust. I mean, what a great privilege uh, to have Dame Vera mm. Lynn do do that. I mean, it, I, I, I was beyond excited um uh, while so we'd got Dame Vera's audio and then while we were editing the video together her majesty the queen went on national television to address the nation as a message of reassurance in lockdown and blow me down what does she end her speech by saying she said uh, we will be with our families again we will be together again we will meet again and all of a sudden overnight we'll meet again was being played everywhere in the uk and Vera Lynn was huge news again. And Dame Vera's PA told us, I'm now being swamped by the world's media, all asking for a quote from Dame Vera as to what she thought about the Queen's speech. Uh, so we put together the video, which again was a labour of love. Uh, I was create, the creative director for it. So I was in the Midlands with my family. Dominic was in Brighton with his family. And the video editor was in Anglesey which is miles away from any of us. And between the three of us, we edited this uh, film together and it premiered on the YouTube channel for Official London Theatre. And fortunately it's, um, it went down very well and it got views all around the world, not just on that YouTube channel, but on others, Playbill picked it up and they published it. Uh, And people all around the world were so touched to hear Dame Vera. I mean, it was basically, they were basically the opinion, if Dame Vera says we're going to be all right, then we're going to be all right. It brought great comfort to people to hear Dame Vera's voice. Uh, So we we never met Dame Vera at this point. Of course, the nation was in lockdown. But we we were told by Susan that she did very much enjoy the film. And six weeks later, Dame Vera passed away. It was the last public engagement she ever had to provide us with that personal message for the We'll Meet Again video. Um, So again, it was uh, that the the video sort of had a surge after that in tribute to Dane Vera because it was the last thing that she ever did. Um, So again, although we never sadly met her in person, to have that link is incredibly special. And it's just another example of how Dane Vera didn't have to do that, but she did it. Uh, And not only did it make for a wonderful film, but it also brought hope and inspiration and comfort when so many people needed it at this dark period in world history. Uh, so, so yes, I, I think there's an example, ne- ne- never lose interest, never be inactive, be like Dame Vera Lynn and keep going till 103. I mean, Ginny went to 102. She died on her 102nd birthday, she actually she went, she went on her birthday. So, uh, and and I was talking on the phone to another of my actress friends, Eileen Page, the one who sang One More Kiss on stage at Tory Lane, she's now 94 and she's still with it she's still looking for projects she did a zoom reading of the cherry orchard you know playing one of the characters in that so yeah we've got to, these people they know something people the people you've met steve ross sandra lee richard steff and so forth they know something to have got to that age and have that wisdom and i hope that younger people will clock this and think no spend time with it and, and especially as you know these people who are they may be old in years, but their heart and their soul and their spirit is as young as any of us. So, so yes. Uh, so even beyond wild card being written, it seems like there is still this eternal link with the older stars and that older generation.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when we are joined by the divine Christine Andreas. Christine Andreas, dubbed the Revival Queen, starred on Broadway in revivals of On Your Toes, Oklahoma, and My Fair Lady, the first two of which earned her Tony nominations. She also gave unforgettable performances in the original productions of The Scarlet Pimpernel, Angel Street, Words and Music, and the 2010 revival of La Cage au Folles. She also performed in the rehearsals of Legs Diamond, the out-of-town tryout of Rags, the revival of Stardust, and Alec Wilder's Clues to a Life off-Broadway. She starred in the fields of Ambrosia here and in London, and in the national tour of Light in the Piazza. As if all this wasn't enough, she also maintains a much lauded cabaret career, which has included performances at the White House, residencies at the Carlisle, and several albums like Lola, Here's to the Ladies, Love is Good, and most recently, Piaf, No Regrets. You won't want to miss this episode. Thanks for tuning in.